everybody, welcome to a new episode of PS a Podcast. I'm your host, Reg Thomas. On this episode, I'm interviewing a good friend of mine, Cody Wilkins. Cody is a funny comedian and writer from Chicago. He currently writes on the Seth Meyers show. We talk about his experiences coming up in the Chicago comedy scene, going from Yale to being a TV writer. He used to be a soccer star. And uh, we're going to just talk about his story and get into some of his views on comedy. I'm very happy to be sharing his story with you guys. Please enjoy. Reg Thomas is not a role model. He is a comedian. Some of the things he says may cause a person to get hurt, expelled, arrested, possibly deported. To put it another way, if you're offended by this, don't blame end stars. Time for a smoke session. ASAP Rocky got Rihanna pregnant. Wow. All right. New York niggas really winning. Okay. All right. The billion dollar Fenty egg. Okay. Came home to New York. Let's get it. I've, like, first, Beyonce knocked up. Uh, Beyonce got knocked up by Jay Z. I'm telling you, man, New York dudes. All right. These women could go all around the world. All right. They traveled the world. They saw what every one of y'all had to offer. They said New York. That's what they said. All right. They went everywhere. They went to L.A. They went to Houston. They went to Europe. They, they met all the billionaires. They met all the guys. They said New York dudes. That's where it's at. Remember that, ladies. Okay? All right? A New York guy is where, is where your soul... A New York guy is your soulmate somewhere. ASAP Rocky don't ever got rap again. It barely felt like he was rapping now. When was the last ASAP album? When was the last time y'all was like... And we love ASAP Rocky. But what... He's just been chilling. It's just been him, her, and outfits all throughout Soho for the last six months. Every day, they just in another corner of New York, dressed nuts. That explains what the outfits were about. She was hiding her belly. I was like, this is, y'all are annoying. I was like, y'all got better clothes than this. Now I get it. I was like, this is insane. <laughs> I was like, why she keep wearing all these puppy jackets? I was like, okay. But you know, you don't be hating because it'd be like it'd be like Chanel and stuff. You be like, I didn't know they make a Chanel puffy, but now you like, okay, she was hiding that. That was my homeboy's dream. My boy uh, Jordan, he always wanted to, like he a slim skinny dude. He's like he always just wanted to wife up a skinny girl and they could have like a unisex closet. They could just share each other's clothes. And then I saw ASAP Rocky and her swap out outfits like in a consecutive. Like you could tell I watched it. I'll be paying attention to this couple too much i only pay attention because i like fashion and like i follow the sites that like the little instagram accounts i let you know what the celebrities are wearing and so like they be matching outfits and i was like oh this is the vision you had drake somewhere breaking a vase drake somewhere slamming a vase something he just broke his favorite glassware he is upset boy because there was a rumor that when drake when when they found out drake had a baby mother out in Paris the rumor was that she, the baby could either be Drake's or ASAP Rocky's and I don't know if that's true or not but if it is true and he just ended up with like an escort baby mama in Paris and ASAP Rocky's with Pond the Replay is nuts it's wild Drake like man I don't even know this baby this baby this baby don't even look like me Drake don't even, like Drake I'm sure Drake's a great dad but he don't know that baby then one time Drake dropped a video of him playing with his son it was like, yo, look who's at that house. Yo, like, that son has never met Drake. Yo, he was like, basketball? Do they have basketball in Paris? Do you do you know how to dribble? The baby's just like, huh? <laughs> baby was like two years old. They didn't even know each other. That was the first time. That was their first time linking. Drake, that's who Drake is. Drake got linked with his kids. <laughs> I'm going to link you later, son. Drake got paid so much money to keep that French woman quiet. I haven't heard her say a word in three years. That woman, that woman hasn't been out. 
all she do is post a new outfit on the on the gram. And now he gotta watch ASAP. ASAP don't even like I like ASAP Rocky. ASAP Rocky was a real big rapper. He went from being a, a big enough rapper to now he's just Rihanna's baby. For, like, do you understand how <laughs> it's been like a 12, 15 year career? It's gone now. His career is Rihanna's baby father. And what's wild is he ain't even had to put a ring on it. They real liberal. They real Gen, Gen Z with it. They like, yeah, we just, you know, we co-parent. We coexist. Yo, when your girl got that type of money. Like, not to say that I wouldn't marry a woman with that type of money, but like, at what point does your money show up? Like, when y'all go, like, I guess you always got enough money for date money, right? So I guess all the dates are on you. But what does she pay for? Like, if y'all go on a, like, fancy vacation. Like, if your girl got a billion dollars, right, and you got three, you got a couple million. And you like, I'm gonna take you on a vacation. You take her to like the Bahamas, but you don't. But like, you know, you ain't you ain't got billionaire money, so you took her to like the resort you could afford. And she's like, I would never stay here, nigga. This is <laughs> at that point, she's just happy that you loved her enough to try, right? And then she like, but like in the middle of the trip, that she just upgrade the whole trip. She's like, this was cute, but we're gonna be at the W now. We're at the Ritz, babe. Stop playing with me. All right. She like you took out like a, a you took like. A hotel room with like a queen size bed. She's like, this is insane. She she make a phone call, y'all in a hotel room with a kitchen. <laughs> don't Rihanna own like an island? Like, ain't they, like, don't they got like Rihanna Day in Barbados? Like, bro, they do not have HR Rocky Day in Harlem. If you get a billionaire girlfriend, you just love her to death and just be the nicest guy ever. Don't ever just be, there's, there's no reason to ever be mad at people, even when they fuck up. And you want to talk about the playbook? Stedman. Stedman. Winfrey, Stedman Winfrey, yeah, that's the guy, Oprah's man for 20, 30 years, yo, Stedman, Stedman was a punchline for like three or five years, and then he went back to be a nobody, that's how you play it, you just stay out the camera, meanwhile, Gail King has a whole career, just from being this bitch's best friend, <laughs> Gail King about to get 10 million a year, as a, as a newscaster from being Oprah's best friend. Stedman. And Stedman was a millionaire. Stedman wasn't no bum. I wonder what he's doing now. He probably cleaning her dogs. And two black dogs. Cuz, man, it's like, I've heard horror stories when you, like, when you married to a rich girl. Like, you know who got put through hell? Safari. When he was wifed up to Nikki. Yo, Safari had to earn his allowance. So yo, Nick and you and with Nick, Nicki Minaj, one of them like Trinidadian and Indian women. Like, I I I don't got nothing to nothing negative to say about Trinidadians or West Indian women, but if you too relax and she working hard to make all the money, you gonna hear about it. Nicki used to try to sun him, like, like you Nicki Minaj, why I gotta carry the bags? Like they got someone here who will carry the bags for you. Like it's a whole, it's, it's a five star hotel, like. Someone is paid to carry the bag. Nikki's like, no, Safari, you carry the bag. Like, yeah. Nikki hated him. That shit has got to be rough. You watch your girlfriend blow up. Because at first, you know, when she was a nobody and he was poppy. Like, if you don't know, Safari was real popular in high school days in Brooklyn. He was a dancer. Like, he would just be dancing. Like, he was really a popular dancer. So like when they got together, you know, she like she was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm wiped up to this little famous dancer, nigga. and then she becomes like the shit. She's Nicki Minaj. You remember Nicki used to take him out, like she would do public appearances and he would dance on her performances. Like he'd be on, she'd be like Good Morning America, like major media platforms, and like Safari just like doing this in the vine. 
That was him working. She was like, if you do not do this, I will not give you money. I still marry a girl who still had it. Even if she was a bitch, I put up with it. I put up with it long enough to get a book deal. Mona Scott Young gonna call me. I'm taking that call. I'm on Love and Hip Hop talking shit. Whitney Houston was another one. They made it, they made it seem like Bobby Brown was the bad influence. Like Bobby Brown got Whitney. Whitney was a druggie. Whitney was a girl from Jersey who was doing drugs and got Bobby Brown hooked. Do you know how bad of an influence you gotta be to fuck up Bobby Brown? <laughs> it's Bobby Brown. Like, Bobby was like, yo, y'all think I like all that coke? That's Whitney liking all that coke. <laughs> Bobby was like, I'm, I'm over here dying trying to keep up with her. This podcast is brought to you by NSTARS. For the latest news in Hollywood, follow NSTARS.com. E-N-S-T-A-R-Z.com. And welcome back to PS a Podcast. I'm your host, Reg Thomas. Uh, today, I have a very special guest, a friend of mine. I re- we just became friends recently, but I like this kid a lot. Sorry to call you a kid, but I'm older than you. Yeah. But outside of that, man, big respect for you. I think you're hilarious. He's from Chicago, so that you should already know he's a hilarious comedian. If you're a comedian coming out of Chicago, if you made it out of Chicago, you just are already, there's a stamp of approval on you, because that city does not produce whack comedians. Hey. And uh, outside of that, I'm just very happy to have you here. Uh, he's a writer for the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Please welcome my good friend Cody Wilkins. Reg, thanks for having me, man. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely, man. Uh, I want. I had you on here. We met recently, maybe a couple months ago. Yeah. And just real early on, I liked you a lot, and I had you on the show, which which is not usually how I book the show. I usually like know a person for a bit. I'm be like, is this <laughs> is this guy good at all? Because like, I'll just like a person, and I'm like, oh, they're not funny, and I'm like, never mind. <laughs> well, you know. But you covered all those. You covered all those bases for me real early, and I had you on the show. How'd you enjoy it? I had a great time. I, I had it. Productively Stone for me was like such a fantastic escape from work. You yeah. Know, it was like, it was fun. It was, I was doing stand up and I was telling jokes, but it felt very communal. And I saw, I met Jeff Wright yeah. there. Uh, Roy was there. Jordan, like there were so many familiar faces of like comics who I'm friendly Jeff Wright's with. another dope. Writer. Yeah, Jeff Wright, another def- uh, uh, writer over it. He's on uh, Roy Wood Jr.? Yeah, Roy Wood Jr. The GOAT. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> it was like a lot of funny, familiar faces in there that made it easy to feel relaxed in the room before I got on stage. And while I was off stage, I mean, they're dying laughing at the people who was up. because Yeah, like, the line, we try to, um, me, like, and, me and Jordan are very competitive yeah. with how we book the show. And like, I probably shouldn't say this, but we bet on like, like if a comic is not good, I'd be like, so this your guy? This is who you thought? <laughs> this yeah. who you thought was lit? And so like it, it goes it goes back and forth. We should start betting. We should start gambling on y'all. But <laughs> I mean, but then you got to come up with a whole metric of how who did well, who's, who's killing won, what exactly, you know. But no, productively sewn. It actually is a whole vibe. And my favorite thing about it is I don't know the last time I was at the stand and saw that many black people in the audience. Yeah, we do it's blacken like, up the space yeah, real quick. It's fantastic. It's like, so the oh. point where like oh, white audience members who show up at our show, they like I'm like, so you guys were just buying tickets and didn't realize, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, Jordan was like, well, welcome to nigga night. And then... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I love that because I feel like... I don't know, I've been only doing stand-up really in New York for the last four years and primarily in Brooklyn. And the few times I have gotten over to the clubs in Manhattan, it's just like the audiences... It feels like the access is very white. And I'll be sitting around like, where are my niggas at? You yeah, know what exactly. Why do I have to go all the way to Harlem to perform in front of people that look like me? And so that, again, just made me feel really comfortable at home. And it's always nice to like... See, like you're not really funny unless your niggas fuck with you. Right, you and it was funny. lit because it was like I know with writing for the TV show, you've been you haven't been able to hit the stage as much as you want. So yeah, like you were sitting on material, you were ready to get off your chest. Right, and that that why that's why I was like so excited to be there because I, I at that point in time, this was mid September, 
I had only really been getting up, running for a month and a half, yeah. month. And so I felt really good as a writer, but I didn't have the stage time to really polish. And I was like, man, this is like a very legitimate show with very legitimate comics. The hosts do their thing every week. I can't bomb. Like, <laughs> I cannot bomb. Oh, you could bomb. We're gonna make the most of a bomb. Uh, like me and Jordan will rose. Like I will go. I will take it too far when somebody bombs. I'll be like, hey, what was that? Y'all saw that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were talking about um, this one comedian from Chicago who owns who who hosts Wacky Shack. Like Kevin. Yes. Kevin one time, one time Kevin had like me, like me and Kev one time traded bombs. Uh, where I did his show, I ate it. He did my show, and I ate it, and he ate it, and. I remember talking to the audience. I was like, yo, you guys treat white comics like judges treat black men. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I, was like, uh, I was like, hey, man, Kevin's a nice guy, audience. This was not, this was unwarranted. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they'd be tight, though. Like, yeah. if they, a black audience is not going to lie to you. They will not. A they black audience is not going to... All right, but see, all right, so you're from Chicago. Yes. And you're right. A black audience will not lie to you. But no. sometimes, like, in Chicago, what I realize is... In certain black towns, it's like if you don't win us over in the next in the first thirty seconds, you're gonna have to work extra, extra hard, hard before we allow you to get into the jokes you want to talk about. Right, and I so I came up in Chicago, not doing like the what part of Chicago city. are you from? First of all, I'm from the South Side. Okay. I'm from this neighborhood neighborhood called High Park. It's like High Park Kenwood. I've heard of it. Yeah, it, it people have heard of it now because like that's where Obama and them stay at or stayed at when they were there, and like the University of Chicago is there. But now, sorry to cut you off. Now, I know a lot. I've met a lot of brothers from sh- the south side of Chicago. Yeah. For you, I feel the safest when I'm with you <laughs> out of all the dudes I've met from the south side. Why uh, is that? Why is that? That is... Me and you hang, I'm like, I don't got to worry about Cody getting yeah. me. I'm never going to catch a charge hanging with Cody. No, not at all. <laughs> no. I, I like to stay consequence free. Yes. You know? And I think coming up, What's interesting about my neighborhood is it's like kind of at a, it's at, at an interesting intersection yeah. where people from different socioeconomic like brackets or whatever are around each other all the time. Like it's it's kind of like it's not sweet, but it's not sour. You okay. know what I mean? But you could, like so I, like is a is is it predominantly a black neighborhood or is it mixed? <sighs> Yeah, it depends. It's like it's sec- everything about Chicago is very segregated. Yeah, like I, I noticed that too. So it's mixed, but it's separated within the. It's like a. It's like a salad. So like this might be a black bowl, block like, and this is a Spanish block. Yeah, like where I stay, I grew up in a standalone home across the street from like at the time what was kind of a middling high school and middle school, like neighborhood middle school that drew from the hood adjacent areas. Okay. It, but then like on the right was a. Uh, my house was like a six unit condo, but on the left was a forty unit apartment, and across the street, kitty corner or whatever. Was Section Eight housing, and but like two blocks away was the Obama's house. So it's like a lot. Everybody, you could like there were days where I could just ride my bike and fucking whistle Dixie if I wanted to, and then there were days where niggas got jumped. It, or like, <laughs> like it was just like I'm gonna take your backpack if yeah. you don't run fast to me. So oh man, I remember those yeah, days. Yeah, y'all, y'all had to live through that. Absolutely. I, that's how I I'm got thirty-five. Fast. How old are you? Go? I'm thirty. Thirty. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so we're in the same age. So, range. yeah, we're right around. Do you there. remember when Jansport, where people were getting robbed for Jansport book bags? Absolutely. Bro, people that was used to the cut worst. The strap. Yes. Used to cut the strap. Do you remember? I remember when iPods first came out. My older brother had one we were walking home from the bus stop, and it was like, my parents were like, don't wear the white headphones because then people know you got the yeah, iPod. I, yeah. We were walking home, and some guy Put was some like, $5 headphones. He was in. like, what you, what you listening to? Uh, just, nah, let me see. Don't answer them questions. Don't, yeah, man. and it was like, 
nope, and we just took off. You know what I'm saying? So, I don't know. Where I'm from, I This is the worst way I ever got robbed right here. One time a dude walked up to me. My mother sent me to the grocery store, and this stranger walked up to me. He was like, yo. And just didn't let go of my hand. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Yo, the second he ain't let go of my hand, I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. Oh. But I remember them jams was, man, in the hood, they would rob all the little kids for their jams for a book bag. What was worse is they would rob you for your book bag, and they still wouldn't go to school. So now none of us are learning. <laughs> they just got packs yeah. for no reason. Yeah. I don't know, man. I think I had a couple friends who could get into shit like that, but I always had stuff to do. Like, my parents made sure to keep me busy because I was, like, a conniving 10-year-old. Like, I was... Oh, you were too smart for your I own was, good. Yeah, I was a little bit of a smart mouth, and I definitely would be the type of person who, like, like, the bad guy in the movie... Like, if there's the bad guy in the movie who, like, has wears the suit behind yeah. the thing, I would have been that guy. Oh, and you're the mastermind. I would have been the mastermind on some, like, I'm not getting my hands dirty, but we're about to go hit a lick. <laughs> And so my parents kept me busy. and Yeah, Cody would have enlisted shooters. How about that? Cody would have had around. shooters. <laughs> Fuck around. Fortunately, that never never came close to any of that. But I don't know. Chicago Being also, from Chicago, I know you at least have one GD friend. It's just, it kind of comes with the territory. Of course. I remember somebody in like seventh, sixth or seventh grade taught me how to shake up GD. And I showed my brother. And he was like, never, ever. <laughs> again. And that's why I feel so safe hanging with Cody. <laughs> hey. You know, I'll keep you out of trouble. I'm also a fast talker. Used to get people out of trouble so quick in school or like with any authority. Be like, wait, hold on, first of all. Got you. Back it out. Yeah, you had yeah, you had confidence to at least be slick with your mouth. Had to. So from the South Side, you end up going to Yale. Correct. Now, how'd you end up at Yale? I I'm just a genius. No, I clearly. I, clearly. I, I was a pretty talented soccer player. And I got recruited to play at a, def- a handful of different schools. What was it? Wait, what schools? Most of the Ivy Leagues, Northwestern. This is the closest like, I've ever been to like being friends with like a first round draft pick. So it's like, nah, yeah. I yeah. mean, <laughs> it was like some middling D1 schools that were like decent places to play, but not like the best schools. Or like, you know, Northwestern or like Stanford were kind of giving me a look, but they were like more aggressive programs. Yeah. And then like most of the Ivy Leagues, because my grades were straight. My parents wouldn't let me do shit unless my grades were straight. So my grades were straight. And I was like an athletic, pretty pretty good soccer player. And so I got recruited to play at Yale. A lot I, of character building around you. I mean, a lot of humbling shit yeah. that happened. Like, there's nothing like any sport I think you play coming up. If you played at an elite level where, like, you're putting in as many hours or half as many hours into the sport as you are into school every week, yeah. you're going to get humbled. There's Someone will always be bigger, faster, smarter, better. And no matter how good you are in your neighborhood or in the city or in the state, when you go to the next level, someone's going to sun you. Yeah. So that's what it's like for me, man. Like I've been moving up in comedy and I'm making new friends and it's like yeah. I thought I was funny. Yeah. I'm all right. <laughs> there are the, yeah. That's how I, that's how I felt when I got to the Tonight Show. I was like, I'm at the Tonight Show I, yeah. riding the bench. You know what I mean? Yeah. Riding the bench. Looking at people who've been writing jokes for Letterman and, and Fallon yeah. and all these people and it's like, damn, yeah, now, they do it's, this. It's humbling. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like, oh, I thought I was funny. I'm more witty. Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm clever. I'm really good at writing like mm, statements. Like, right. You know? Like, and then like you meet other people who are so funny, it's like they'll take like a little part of a joke that we were just making was just like a little joke. And then like they it's now they done built the whole universe. Yeah. And like I was like Yeah. So I, I got I, I got recruited to play soccer at Yale and I went because I wanted to be a professional soccer player. Well, which is like was it culture shock being around I, uh in Yale? It was a big culture disappointment. I wasn't shocked because playing soccer, I had spent a lot of time around white people. Like I had to go out to the suburbs with all these rich white kids and blah, blah, blah. But when I got there, there was 
No niggas. And I mean, like, there was no niggas. Like, there were black people, but they weren't, they were like, there were, if there were a hundred black people, if there were a hundred black people. On the entire campus. Like, uh, yeah, if there were a hundred black people on campus, then like 85 of them were from, you know, West Africa and the Caribbean. Like, they were, they were international kids. And then the the black kids from the States, if they were, let's say there were 15 of us, 10 of those niggas are cul-de-sac kids who, like, their best black friends growing up were on TV. They were TV characters written by white people. And now they're coming to school discovering their blackness. So it was, like, five real niggas running around from, like, the city. And out of five real niggas, like, how many of us going to get along? Right. <laughs> you know? And so a couple of them, we stuck together like glue. I, like, one of my best black friends from school is from Detroit. Yeah. Detroit and Chicago. You know, we... Yeah. So and y'all that, not even supposed like, to get along. We're not even supposed to get along. My, one of my best homegirls, black homegirls school from Harlem. You know what I mean? So, and it was, like... We all knew each other. It was yeah, tight. There's so. a there's a really whack ethos amongst Africans and Caribbean people that like where we kind of look down on like Black Americans, and I'm like, y'all know we all in trouble, right? Yeah. So it took some time. You get there your freshman year, and like there are those identifying divides that take time to kind of go away. But the biggest thing was I got there, and they're like, oh, this is a bastion of diversity, and it was like that means. That white girl's from Vermont, and that white girl's from Oregon. That's yeah. what you mean by diversity. Or like, so yeah, like or di- di- yeah, diversity. When you diversity means so many things that just yeah. don't mean more black people. It's the most ambiguous shit. Like, so when I got there, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. And honestly, that's what pushed me to comedy. I, I went to play soccer. I wanted to be a professional soccer player, which is like the least Ivy League decision you can make because it's like not a powerhouse. But I got there, and I was really disappointed with, you know, I wasn't in love with school. That's not. I wasn't a, a book. I wasn't a bookworm like that. What were you studying? When I first got there, I was a soccer player. I was not concerned with class. I was like, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. All I did was go to class. I wasn't partying, making friends. I was just trying to play soccer and go to the league. That's what I was trying to do. They said, the reason I went to Yale is because they're like, you're going to play your freshman year. And my parents were like, you're going to fucking go to Yale if they're going to let you. So I was like, all right, bet. You had tunnel vision. Yeah, tunnel vision. I went, and the tunnel vision made the experience really shitty. And then one day, because it was like a Friday night, I had no friends. I wasn't doing shit. Some... White girl who I probably would have never hung out with in Chicago comes knocking on everybody's door like, hey, we're going to watch a movie upstairs if you want to come. And I was like, I don't have no friends. So I went up, I watched, and she had the DVD of Eddie Murphy Delirious. Okay. And we watched it and got like 20 minutes in. I'm dying laughing. Everybody else is mad uncomfortable because he's talking about all this <laughs> shit. But it was, it was so funny to me. And they cut it off like 20 minutes in. But then the next day. What? Yeah. Because people were just like, and this is like 2010. People weren't really well, I mean, that. That at, and t- in 2010, that special might have been almost 25 years old. Yeah. So like, so yeah. it was, but he's saying some things that like, is that the one in the purple suit? That's the red suit. The red suit. The yeah, red yeah. suit he's, was. He's really letting it in. He, yeah, he's letting it go. And but it was mad funny. And the next day, coincidentally, the school sent out a campus-wide email inviting people to try out for the last comic standing competition. And I had always been a smart mouth. I was always funny. On NBC? No, no, no. At on campus, like okay. an on campus version. And I had. Always fancied myself sociable and like I was funny in the locker room. And I was really frustrated. And I had felt like when I got there, I was doing a lot of pretending of like a version of myself who would make these white people feel safe or who would make oh, these the white code people switch. feel safe. Yeah, I was coast was just so hard that I was like, getting on stage would be the first time I could actually tell the truth. And like, because it'll be, you know, colored in humor, yeah. I can tell them what the fuck I really think about them <laughs> and how they really make me feel. And I got up on stage and I won this competition. In front what of was the like, bit you remember saying? It was kind of honestly it's stolen from a Dave Chappelle bit. I told a story about how whenever they like, they used to send these emails whenever a crime happened on campus. Yeah. I did a bit about how like every time they do it, it's always like a black guy between five foot and seven foot <laughs> who's like 
somewhere between high yellow and super dark and has a short hair but also an afro. So, like, when those emails go out, I just never leave the house. Because <laughs> I'm the only nigga on campus. Like, I just would. It was something like that. Yeah, like, so just say me. How about that? Yeah, just... like, I had some bit about how my parents, I only hit them up when I was asking for money. Yeah. So, one time they sent me anthrax or some super shit. You know, it was, like, <laughs> not particularly good humor, but I felt comfortable up there. And the first time I ever did stand-up was in front of, like, 400 and Four, probably 400, 450 people. So oh, wow. packed lecture hall that I didn't expect. and No stage fright? That's probably from, 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 from performing on the field. Yeah. Well, the very like so it was split, and there were two rounds. There was a four-minute round, and if you got past, you go to the six-minute round. The four-minute round, I got up there, and like I could not see the audience. My vision was so blurry. But then I did my first joke, and people kind of like chuckled, and my heart rate slowed down. And yeah, I that's all you need see. is that first little laugh. Yeah, you go, okay. I got my first laugh within like 10, 15 seconds. And I was good. And it just felt good to be good at something. I didn't even think, like, this is something I'll do for my career. This is something I want to do for real. It was just, it feels good to do something other, like, outside of my box. You yeah. Know? And, like, have a different way to define myself. Because at Yale, at the Ivy Leagues, like, if you're an athlete, people assume you're dumber. You needed help to get here. You know? And So I was an athlete. I was black. Really? Yeah. Everybody was like, this nigga, Mr. Handout, Mr. Help. Oh, know? wow. And so it was a nice way to... Establish my point of view and, and build be like, my voice. Show your intellect. Yeah, and then I did that. I would do that on campus, and then I would come home to Chicago. On Forty Seven, the King in Bronzeville, there was this all black club called Jokes and Notes. Total. I've heard of Jokes and Notes. This yeah. is a famous Jokes and Notes. Venue. Is like, yeah, I, I like the late Jokes and Notes. It closed a couple years ago. Yeah, didn't but, um Hannibal have like a dope? Yeah, like when I when I first started, when I came back to Chicago, Laurel Howery was the house MC. Yeah, Hannibal was in and out. Deion Cole was in and out. Some amazing writers and comics on both coasts. Dave Hellum, Will Miles. Like Dave Hellum, shout out Dave Hellum. Yeah, shout out all, all like Mary Lee. Like so many fantastic comics were like working adult comics. And I showed up, this baby-faced 18, 19-year-old kid. And the first night, I, like I, could, I had to be an intern because I was too young to actually work at the club. And I got up my first night, did like a three-minute open mic. Bombed so hard. I almost quit. Like I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm actually not a real comic. I'm very funny on campus. With like all these white people who you know like, I get. You were like, I completely understand why. Yeah, <laughs> I get I, because on campus it was like me and a bunch of people who could relate very yeah. easily. So and I was the only black person around. Really, so all I had to do was change my voice and shake my shoulders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like you get a joke. I you got, got in front of a Chicago crowd. They was like, what is this? It's like 25 to 35 and plus working class black people from the neighborhood. My parents, parents, friends, working niggas from around the block. And they were looking at me like, who the fuck are you? And what are you doing here? Why do you think you're here? So that's re- really where I cut my teeth. Yeah, yo, Chicago like, will do that. Like, black rooms will do that. Yeah. Man. Like, I love uh, I love doing black rooms, Absolutely. Man. They're the realest shit. And then especially, like, coming up, my uh, my mentor, Marshall Brandon, he just got past the comedy cellar last night. He Shout out Marshall. Yeah, he was the king. When I first met him, it, we did a show. I was 26. I, we did a show at Long Island University. And uh, it was the day after Easter. And so I was wearing a suit. I was, like, trying to look professional. Right. And Marshall was up there, and he was just the host, and he was just destroying. And, like, I, I don't, I'm pretty sure I did bad. And But he was, like, but he befriended me. He was, like, you're funny. You just don't know what, you just don't know how to do comedy. But you're funny. And he was, like, he took me under his wings. And, like, for years, like, he would take me to all the hood rooms. He mm-hmm. would, t- like... He's just really good to me, man. Just looked out for me. Really showed me like a formula how to write jokes and like how to get my voice and everything. And uh, I remember he would do. He did this one hood room on Flatbush Avenue. It was Wednesday nights. 
the it was such a hood promotion that the promoter gave free jerk chicken out. If you just showed wow. up, if you just showed up, wow. no, no, you don't gotta meal. buy tickets. We will give you jerk chicken. Just come. The show was so hood. It never started before midnight. It never what? started before midnight. And the audience and it was, was on a Tuesday, yeah. wasn't it? Just brutal. and the audience was nothing but old crip and like old gang members who you thought died. <laughs> it's just dudes, you like, I thought this nigga died. And he's like, nah, this is who you gotta make laugh. Right. And you're just terrified. You're like, yo, I might. I like there were times in my mind, I was like, am I gonna die if I'm not funny here? Yo. <laughs> I mean, you're definitely going to die inside because, again, niggas will let you know there's sharks in the water. And yeah. that, I think that's the best way to learn because when I – I remember the first time I got up on stage in Chicago after being in school, I was, like, trying to change my mannerisms and my voice and, like, to fit the people who had come before me. And it's like, if you're going to fake it, they're going to die. You have yeah. to be yourself. That's the only thing you can do if you're going to succeed in front of black audiences. Be your fucking self. And, like, like and so, like, you, we were talking about how you're uh, – how probably we we were talking about earlier before the show like um, pretentious like you grew up around pretension and like pretentiousness is in your voice, and that's because you speak very proper, which is whatever. But uh, how did you like? How did you know that like you know what? Even in a black crowd, I don't gotta necessarily like hood it up. I could be myself, but I like how'd you win them over? Like what did you know that you was like? All right, you look. I just gotta be me. Yeah, I would say the first thing I had a fantastic mentor. I have a fantastic mentor. Her name is Mary Lindsay. Okay, and. If any ask anybody who came through or out of Chicago, any black comic, you know, Mary is the mother of like all Chicago there, and she owned Jokes and Notes. Oh, I've heard of this lady. Yes, you have. Of I course have heard have. of this lady. And after the first time she put me up on an open mic, and I bombed so hard I got heckled. Like they almost cut the music on. It was bad. The next day I showed up to work. I was like, she was like, how do you, how do you, how do you think you did? And I was like, I don't think this is for me. And she was like, well, if you don't get on stage next week for the mic, you're fired and you can never come back here. So she just forced me to go up there and figure it out. And I think the other thing that I ended up doing was like, you got to respect your audience, you know? Yeah. You have to respect the Read the room. Read the room and respect the intellect of your crowd. Like, yeah. I think I was so young and I was living in two such starkly different worlds. Yeah. Um, or at least what I perceived to be, right? That I at Yale was doing a version of the students that I felt like they could relate to. I like turned myself into that, like code switching into that. And yeah. at home was like code switching into that. And it don't feel like you code switch much nowadays. Not you at you all. feel very consistent throughout I, yeah. all planes now. Yeah, I try to I try to, you know, just be myself at all times because that's how it's just best for yeah, you. Yeah, that's just best for that's I'm trying to more than funny, I'm just trying to be healthy. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, and I'm healthy is being myself. Because all that other shit, I'm not. I was thinking about this the other day. Remember the Titans? I don't remember the whole quote, but Denzel Washington says something like, "I don't scratch my head unless I hear. I don't scratch. I don't dance unless I hear music. I don't scratch my head unless it itches." Yeah, I feel you, man. I, like I read an article yesterday in like I think the New Yorker, and it was about uh, black people and how they like black people who date white people and how they have to code switch. Oh, I saw the, the headline of that and refused. Oh, you did. You saw the article. Yeah, it was. It was very interesting. Like this, this one black girl. She was like, for instance, like I don't wear my natural hair around. I saw a, that. With a, around oh, a, a white, like she's dating. This, so sad. She was dating this white guy for like six months, and she waited like a quarter year oh. before she pulled out her braids. I was like, first off, that smelled. Right. Secondly, <laughs> she had braids in for like three months before she let her see the afro. Oh, and, then, man. And, then, and, then, and then when they interviewed the, white, the boyfriend, he goes, I was so obsessed with it. Uh, uh, <laughs> it didn't make me feel any better at all. Yeah, that, no, man. I think. And then there was the gay dude in the article who uh, said his, his, there was a black gay dude and he said his white boyfriend called him out about 
they were lost trying to go to from like DC to Baltimore or something, and they got lost. And he asked this black dude on the corner for directions, and he was like, "Yeah, I guess I blackened it up <laughs> when I was asking." He's uh, like, "Hey, brother, you know how uh, I get to?" And then his boyfriend was like, "Yo, why'd you just start talking uh, like?" <laughs> oh man! And I was like, "Y'all," I was like, "This is bad." Yeah, this is bad for love, man. That's terrible. I, I yeah, I. It has taken me some time to get to the point where I'm not ever gonna like pretend to be any version of myself for anyone. I had to mature into this and yeah. I had to like take a lot of L's. In fact, a, a year ago, about a year ago this time, I quit doing comedy and writing. I was like, I'm done. Yeah, you took it, you, for real? Yeah, I, I stopped. I, I used to, for five years in a row, I would hand write in a journal thoughts and jokes and bits every day for five years in a row. And October 2nd, 2020, I stopped because I said I quit. And it's because I started doing stand-up in college in 2010. After I graduated, I moved to Chicago, Los Angeles, Nashville. I had worked as a writer's assistant. I You lived in Nashville doing comedy? Yeah, I was doing trying what? to... I, I was in Nashville working on a music tech company, but I ended up like... Hannibal came through and let me open for him at the Zanies there. Okay. And then they let me like be the house MC for a little bit. Okay. But, you know, I had done, I've done a lot of stand-up. Did you feel like the journaling wasn't had, helping with your writing? It was just, it's not that it wasn't helping, but like I was at a point where last year, in the middle of, middle of pandemic 2020, I had been at a Yale, I was a Yale graduate with a couple resume lines, including a writing credit. And it's the summer of George Floyd. Everybody wants to hire yeah. black and blah, 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 woo, woo. I'm repped at CAA, and I can't find a fucking job for almost three years. And I'm, like, getting sick because I've written a pilot, and I've written a feature, and I've written, and I've done, I've done all these shows, and I'm, like, contorting myself in all these ways to be accepted by this mass of a thing yeah. that, like, just marginalizes and oppresses and uses me and people like me. Yeah. And I was getting physically ill, and I was like, fuck that. Like, it's been 10 years that I've been in this since the first time I got on stage. I'm done now. I, I wash my hands of this. Time for me to just be myself. I got right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to pretend anymore. I'm not going to perform. I'm going to embrace myself. On the day before I quit, I got the Fallon packet. And they were like, we need you to write two pages of jokes. And I wrote, the jokes that I wrote were like, I don't give a fuck. He would never say this. This is funny to me. NBC would never ticket, 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 ticket. Just wrote my sense of humor and my voice. And four months full later, of, full, full of the frustrations, too. full of the frustrations. I just aired it out. I just aired it out, and I was myself, and I didn't care because I had nothing to lose. I was no longer interested. Four months later, they called me like the house was on fire. Hey, man, you want to come work? When I got there, they were like, "Yo, we probably would never say any of the shit that you just wrote on this paper, but we fuck with your point of view. We fuck with your comedy. We want you to try and do this here. Just be yourself." And so it's like, did you not like have? Did you not cry a tear of joy? Because like, <laughs> think about that three years you just described. Yeah, it was brutal. Three years of not working, and you you were creative. You're a comic in New York. It's like you're doing all sorts of stuff just to pay the bills. M mind you, I was so self conscious about my perception of failure because everybody around me. There's, I was telling this to a tear and a mama, uh, a tear Yakub and a mama whose last name I forget, but they're comics. Yeah, I was talking to them the other day, uh, and I think. For me personally, and this is going to sound kind of pretentious, but no one has ever told me I can't. No one has right. ever been like, you cannot. You can't do it. You won't make it. Except for like maybe like a white soccer coach or some hating yeah. ass white boy in college or something. Yeah. No one's ever been like, you can't. And that's fantastic because I felt like, like I've been my biggest, my own worst enemy the whole time. Yeah, that is, that is like, very, yeah. It's just been me. 
That I, you know what I suffered man. I was like, I was like, I don't have a hater. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't. Nobody is hating on me. Everybody is like, you're good. You'll be fine. You got it. I believe. And then you're like, you like, oh, so I just it. haven't done the work. So, right. So then, if what that means is when you when I do shit, it's like, well, yeah, you were fucking supposed to. Like you're standing on shoulders of giants. You got all the privilege in the world. I'm supposed to do this. And when I don't do shit, it's like I'm dropping the fucking ball. Yeah. I'm disappointing everybody who believes me. Blah blah blah. Woo. But then, so I was those three years. I'm like. Seeing friends from college, who's an, an investment banker and, and a, a judge in yeah, yeah, DC, especially and, yeah, you got oh, yeah, blah, your circle is just Yale grad, yeah. making more money than they can spend, and I'm like sleeping on futons and fucking doing open mics in the back of coffee shops and shit, just eating shit, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Who am I doing this for? And it wasn't until I let go of all that and started like writing and thinking and living and breathing and eating and sleeping for myself yeah. and embracing like who I was, then my shit started hitting. And I started writing well and performing well. And I feel so much better on stage now and so much better on paper because it's like, this is just for me. So you were, so the day before you was ready to quit, you got the packet. Yeah. Well, how did you How did you even know to, <laughs> like, let me do this one. Like, I'm, I know I quit. But I'm going to just... Because <laughs> that had been the one. Yeah. It was my... I wasn't going to do it. Admittedly, I was not going to do it. Um, I was upset. I was very irritated that the universe would put this thing on my plate the day before I stopped. And I was like, fuck that. And my older brother, who was my person, he's uh, two years older than me, and we play a game called Tag You're Broke because, <laughs> <laughs> because he's an entrepreneur. And I'm a comic. Yeah. And so, so y'all could be broke at different times. You could be broke at different times. Yeah. And I was it, you know, at that moment. I was broke. And he was like, bro, you procrastinate everything. You do everything at the last minute, always. And now you mad because the industry has come up at the last minute to ask you to do some shit? Just do it. Oh, just wow. He really cleared you out. Yeah. He just told me about myself. And I did it. And then I checked back in two weeks later. Nothing. Two weeks after that, nothing. The next month. October, November, December, January. By February, I'm like, well, Who are you checking just, in with? You emailing them or um, checking in with your I was reps? Checking with my reps, like checking in with my reps, checking in with. I had a friend who was like working over there, and I was like, you heard anything? Da 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 blah. And it was just like nothing. And I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna ride this lease out. I'm gonna go back to Chicago and fucking write Nintendo commercials or something or do something else. And like, I didn't even do stand up. I was done. Yeah. Even when I got the job, it was still a pandemic. I wasn't vaccinated. I was just writing. I was like, I guess I don't need stand-up anymore because it's been a means to an end. Yeah. But now it's like having so much of my time and my focus going to writing jokes for like the show, which is a product, you know? Yeah. I appreciate, I'm grateful for the opportunity. There's fantastic people over there. But like that's an institution. The, the Tonight Show is commercials for commercials. Yeah. You know? And it really is commercials for commercials. It's commercials for commercials, and they do a great job, and they have. It's a, it's fantastic, but it's not. It doesn't feel like art to me. It feels like product. Yeah. And now that my product is taken care of, now that my bills are paid, I can get on stage and make art. Yeah, and that shit feels good. That's beautiful, man. Yo, Cody, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for thank having you. me, man. Absolutely, and we will have you back on the show. Thank you very much, bro. Appreciate you. Wow. Go to Protective Zone. Yes. Also, uh, where should they follow you? Where should they follow oh, you? Oh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at what Cody said. That's where I'll be putting on my shows. Pull up. I'm going to make you happy and sad all at the same time. PSA Podcast is produced by Junius Valentine, sound engineer Adam Mock, and written by Reg Thomas. You've been listening to 
an N-Stars production.